We're continuing a summer series that we're calling the Summer Reformation. Uh, this year, as we've said, is the 500th anniversary of what's known as the beginning of the uh, Protestant Reformation. And that Reformation was really a refocusing and a revival by the Spirit of God on five great truths. Five great truths enlivened by the Spirit of God that transformed people's lives, transformed darkness into light over an entire continent and has made an impact around the world to this very day. These five great truths that the gospel is by grace alone, it is through faith alone, it is brought to us through the merits of Christ alone, it is revealed to us by scripture alone and all of the glory for the gospel of salvation goes to God alone, to God alone. Those are the five great truths that we're considering during this series of a summer reformation. This morning we'll continue as we're talking about Christ alone, Christ alone. Now this fall, Susan and I are once again looking forward to making a trip to Romania. Uh, we did this a few years ago. We were able to go and be in a conference with one of our, our partners over there, Pastor Eugene Groza, who's been here many, many times. So grateful for the partnership that we've had for, I guess, over 20 years now with these dear friends in Romania. But this conference is held almost on an annual basis, and I was blessed to go, and then Susan and I went, and we are able to speak with pastors and, and wives from Romania, from Ukraine, Russia, Moldova, Bulgaria, uh, all gathered there in the mountains of Romania for a time of, of, of teaching and prayer, and so we're looking forward to that. We were able to do this a few years ago. It was a real, real blessing to us. And it also happened about the time of uh, our wedding anniversary. So on the way back, uh, as a, just an anniversary time, we, we visited Rome. We were there for uh, a long weekend, about three days in Rome. And that was just, uh, it was just tremendous. Enjoyed that. That was on my bucket list for a long time to be able to visit Rome. One of the amazing places that we were able to visit there is called the, the Vatican Museum, and it is, it is filled with treasures, artifacts. Uh, it's an amazing, an amazing place. But I especially wanted to see the Sistine Chapel, the Sistine Chapel, a chapel, of course, that you know that the painting of, of Michelangelo on the ceiling, I always had looked forward to doing that. Now, when we finally got there, I must tell you, it was sort of a surreal and somewhat disappointing experience because it's, it's not a very big room and they allow way too many people in there at one time. You go in at groups and uh, then uh, a, a guard speaking Italian are fussing at you and you don't know quite what they're saying and they keep you to say, keep moving, keep moving and uh, and they especially saying no photographs, no photographs. And so you're moving through, you know, looking around this beautiful thing and looking up at that amazing ceiling. And uh, <laughs> can you believe Susan did this? I, I was just telling her. Okay. She got her hand down there and did that. I couldn't believe it. Uh, now, 
I have to tell you, that's not the Sistine Chapel, okay? Susan said, you make sure you tell them that's not the Sistine Chapel. But that is one of the ceilings, and Susan and I are over there, so uh, we snapped this picture. And uh, you can take it down now, because it freaks me out a little bit when looking over my shoulder like that. <laughs> that's the only thing we could get up today. We couldn't get anything else up. We got that picture up. But she wanted me to know she did not take a picture of Sistine Chapel. So uh, that is not what that was. But we took some beautiful pictures. But one thing is like a photograph in our minds in the Sistine Chapel. It's that scene of creation. Have you seen this where the hand of God is reached out to the hand of Adam and the fingertip of God's finger has just been released from the fingertip of Adam, and, and there he is, created in the image of God, looking into the face of his creator, this amazing event of creation where man has come alive by God's power, and God has made one like himself in his image, and this perfect fellowship has been created. There you see that picture. As I saw that picture that day, I could not help but think how far away mankind has gone from the finger of God, how far away from the presence of God, and how quickly it happened. You know that Adam and Eve, by their sin, violated that relationship they had with God. And between the image bearers of God and God himself who loved them and gave them life, this perfect paradise of enjoying the Lord and his beauty and freedom in his presence, it was ruined. And separation came in and a gulf of infinite proportions has entered between Almighty God and those created in his image. That is the reality of the human condition. How can that reunion be accomplished? The Bible opens with union. It opens with God and mankind enjoying each other's presence and fellowship. And then it is ruined by sin. Man goes astray from God. But God in his great love and God alone is able to cross that divide and to bring reconciliation and reunion. And that is the story of redemption. It is the story of salvation. And that gap between God and man has only been crossed and only been conquered by Christ alone, right? Christ alone. Our text says this. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. Here you have in one verse... The entire theme of the Bible compacted into one verse. This is one of the amazing statements 
in the entire word of God, the whole theme of the Bible in one verse. 1 Timothy 2.5. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. There is the message of the Bible. One God, one race, one mediator. One God, one race, one mediator. Now that is the message of redemption. How the chasm between imperfect man and perfect God is crossed and how the reunion is made. That's the message of the Bible. But now many religions have attempted other ways to address that divide. And I'd like us to think about them this morning just for a few moments, if we might. I, I like to divide them into some categories. And you'll have to le- listen carefully because, I, again, the screens are not operative. First of all, there are religions that say, no God, no mediator. Because there is no God, there's no need of a mediator. No God, no mediator. That would be atheism, first of all. Atheism, no God. Therefore, there's no need of a mediator. Atheism is a religion. <laughs> Deism. There's a, not a personal God. There's a force. And, but he's not a personal God, so there's no need of a mediator. There's no one to bring us together to this impersonal force. And that's what deism teaches. It's also taught in mysticism. What is mysticism? Mysticism is modern day pantheism, that God is in all things, all living things make up the sum of God. And so, because God is in all things, God is in you, and he's in all creatures and all things, and therefore there's no need of a mediator. The largest of this kind of religion would be Buddhism, Buddhism. Buddhism does not believe in a personal God. There are hundreds of millions of followers of Buddhism. Believes there's not a personal God, but it is a personal pursuit of enlightenment. Of enlightenment into the the truth of all things, all beings. That's Buddhism. No God, no mediator. That's one religious answer. No God, no mediator. Then there's another answer. Many gods, but no need of a mediator. Many gods, but no need of a mediator. This would be religions that are under the category of animism. Animism. Animism is a belief that God is, exists in various life forms. Gods of the rivers, gods of the trees, gods of the rocks, the skies, gods of the heavens, various objects. God quality, but again, not personal. So there's no need of, no way of a mediation between those gods and human beings. Paganism is this as well. Paganism is polytheism. And I want you to know, paganism is making a huge rise in the West. 
paganism is a belief that there are many godlike beings. But there is no way for us to know how to mediate between them. There's, there's no way of knowing how to satisfy their demands. Most popular form of this, no many gods, no mediator, would be the religion of Hinduism. Hinduism is followed by hundreds, again, hundreds of millions of people. And Hinduism has millions of gods. It's estimated that Hinduism believes there exists 200 million gods. 200 million gods. But there is no personal way of having a relationship between these, these gods and human beings. So again, no God, no mediator. There are some religions, many gods, no mediator. And then there are religions that say there is one God, one God, but no mediator. One God, but no mediator. This would be the religion, for example, of Islam. Islam teaches that there is one true God, and he has one primary prophet, Muhammad. But there is no mediator between sinful people and Allah. Really, it is a relationship that must be established by works. By good works and merit, a person may be able to satisfy Allah and on the judgment day be granted entrance into paradise. Islam. One God, but no mediator. And sadly, Judaism, as it is practiced, is really this form. One true God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, Jacob, who gave us his law through his great lawgiver, Moses. But there is no one who is a mediator personally between us as sinners, and that holy God. There's a belief that a deliverer will come to the nations. Many of the followers of Judaism believe there's a Messiah who is coming, but they, they do not see him as a, a mediator who brings perfect God and sinful people together. Then, as we talk about the Reformation, there came into existence after New Testament Christianity and over a period of centuries within Christianity came a message of one God, but many mediators, many mediators, one God, but many mediators. Now, this was the teaching that arose during the Middle Ages, and was the very teaching out of which the reformers brought their great protest. One God, many mediators. This was the teaching then and the teaching today of Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism. Now let me stop here for a moment. When I talk about Roman Catholicism, I want you to understand I'm not talking about Catholics personally. I'm not talking about Catholics. 
Because I've told you before, the word Catholic, what does it mean? It means universal. All Christians are part of the Catholic Church in the sense that all followers of Jesus are brothers and sisters in him and we are part of his one body, the church. Catholic is a word for universal. So I'm not saying anything to disparage Catholics. Some people have asked me before, do you think Catholics can be saved? And I said, well, I absolutely believe that. As a matter of fact, I, I even know a few Baptists I think might be saved. Okay, so, <laughs> hey, not surprising to me that some Catholics will be saved. Uh, look at us, okay? Not like the dream team here, okay? So we're not talking about Catholics. Listen carefully. We're talking about Roman Catholicism as a system. It teaches one God, the true God, but many mediators, many who can mediate, represent between us and that God. Now, officially... Roman Catholicism says, no, 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 there's only one true mediator, the mediator, Jesus Christ. But in definition and in the endorsed practice of the Roman Catholic Church, there are many mediators. You see, the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, in its dogmas, teachings, confuses mediator and intercessor. Listen very carefully what I'm about to say. A mediator is not the same as an intercessor. What is an intercessor? An intercessor is someone who prays or pleads on behalf of another. So when you pray for other people, you are an intercessor. You are praying on their behalf. You are pleading on their behalf. You are an intercessor. But an intercessor is not the same thing as a mediator. A mediator is a legal representative of two parties to bring them together and make peace. A mediator is a legal representative of two parties to bring them together, reconcile them, and make peace. That's what a mediator is. But in endorsed practice, Roman Catholicism teaches there are many mediators, such as the saints, the saints. The mediation of the saints is taught. Now, does the Bible talk about saints? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, the Bible says every Christian is a saint. Now, you may be sitting there and saying, listen, Sam, a saint I ain't. Okay. <laughs> but the Bible says every Christian is a saint because what does saint mean? Saint means to be set apart. Saint means to be set apart by God and to belong to God. That's what it means. So every Christian belongs to God, has been set apart for God. We are saints. But under the teaching that arose in the Middle Ages of the Roman Catholicism, a saint was someone who had extra merit, extra righteousness. 
not an ordinary Christian, but an extraordinary Christian who had gone beyond in duty and service what was required and had accomplished great merit, great merit before God. This, these works, this merit, has a doctrinal term that's given to it. It's called supererogation. Supererogation. Not super irrigation. That would be something else, okay? Supererogation means extra works, extra righteousness, extra merit. So, what is taught in this system is that the saints are people who have earned extra righteousness by their lives. And that becomes, that extra righteousness from all these saints becomes the treasury of the church. The treasury of the church. This treasury of the saints, of the treasury of the church, is overseen by the vicar of Christ on earth, by the Pope. He is able to assign the super works, the extra merit of saints to people who are in need of indulgence. An indulgence. What's an indulgence? An indulgence is when somebody is forgiven the penalty for their sin that they must pay for in purgatory. Because according to the teachings of Rome, only saints go directly to heaven because of their super righteousness. Everyone else must go for a period of time to purgatory to be purged of their sins that they have not confessed. Then when they are purged from those sins, they will be released into paradise. According to the teaching of the church, saints by their super righteousness can plead on behalf of people in purgatory so that their merit is assigned to them and there is a granting of forgiveness. This is what was being taught in those middle ages and to the point of where people were told if they gave gifts to the church then because of their gifts to the church, then would be granted to them or their loved ones the lessening of payment in purgatory. This was the message that the reformers rose up against like no other. They said, absolutely not. The forgiveness of sin cannot be purchased on someone else's behalf. It cannot be earned on somebody else's behalf. A saint cannot grant the forgiveness of sins because that saint pleads to God on behalf of others here below. Absolutely not. And so the Reformation was a protest against that. Also a protest of the idea that the Virgin Mary could be a mediator. Romanism teaches that the Virgin Mary is a mediator based on several things. Based on, first of all, listen carefully, the Immaculate Conception. 
Some of you have heard the term immaculate conception and you think that refers to Christ and his immaculate conception. It does not. When the term immaculate conception is used, it refers to the Virgin Mary that she was born immaculate, that she was born without sin and therefore could be the vessel to bring God into the earth. So she is immaculate. She is born without original sin. Therefore, she has been assumed up to heaven bodily. And she is now the queen of heaven. This is her title. She is the queen of heaven and people can intercede to her as the queen of heaven. And she will mediate, be a mediator between people and her son, Jesus for the needs of her people. She's the queen of heaven. She is called the co-redeemer. This is her title, the co-redemptrix or the co-redeemer. That she, by her righteousness, enters into the passion of her son, Jesus Christ, and mediates for sinners to God. Now, friends, of course, listen carefully. The Bible knows absolutely nothing of this. The Bible does not teach that any person, no matter how good and godly that person may be, no person can mediate to a holy God on our behalf. Nobody can do that. And the Bible teaches, listen carefully, to pray is an act of worship, right? And to pray to a human being whether saint or whether to marry herself. To pray is an act of worship and it is strongly condemned. It is, in fact, blasphemy. Prayer is to be worship offered to God alone through Christ. Now, what then is the answer? I've given you these answers who are, that are not the answer. To what? The problem. What's the problem? The gulf between us and God. That's the problem. Sinners, holy God, a chasm infinite in its dimensions. How can we possibly get together? And the gospel answer is there is one mediator. That's the good news. There is an answer. There is one who can be the mediator between me, a sinner, and a holy God. Verse 5, look at it. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus. Friend, there is the theme of the Bible, as I've shared with you. One God. One race of human beings, one mediator to bring us together again, and that one is Jesus. Now let's open this up just for a moment, just for a few minutes. What is the message here? One God. There's not many gods, there's one God. One eternal living God who exists forever in three persons Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One God. The only true God. What is this God like? 
This God is holy. He is holy. What does that mean? It means unlike, separate. There is no one like our God. There is no one that can be compared to him. There's no one like him. He is completely separate. He is completely unique. And in particular, he is completely sinless. The Bible says God is light and in him is no darkness at all. He's holy. Completely holy. None holy but he. What else is he? He's holy, but he's merciful. Thank God, right? He's merciful. He's good. He's good. Can you imagine what it would be to have a holy God, omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing, omnipresent, everywhere at once, to have a God like that if he was evil? But he's not evil. He's merciful. He's good and kind. For years, Martin, Martin Luther was terrified by the thought of an angry God that would destroy him at any moment, a God that he could never make happy, and in his heart, he hated that God because he did not think he could make God like him, let alone love him. And let's be honest, some here today, that may be a struggle for you right now. You find it very hard to draw near to the God you hear about because in your mind, for whatever reason, he is angry and you cannot please him. And friend, I want to tell you what Martin Luther came to understand. And here's his quote. He said, quote, those who see God as angry do not see him rightly. He is not a God filled with anger and desiring to destroy us. No, he is merciful. Look at verse four. Look at verse four. He is a God who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God has good intentions. His thoughts are of peace, not of evil. His desire is that all might be saved. They might be delivered from their sins and come to a knowledge of the truth of grace in him. He desires this. He's a good God, full of compassion. He loves the people he created. He loves the people that is, are made in his image. He loves us. He loves us. He's a good God. Holy, yes. Merciful. There's one God. One God. And there's one race. There's one God and one mediator between God and men. Men means here mankind in verse number five. Mankind. There is only one race. The human race. The human race exists in great diversity. Great diversity exists within our race. But friends, never forget it. 
There is only one race, the human race, and all people are made in the image of God. We are all created in his image. None better than others. All image bearers. We are one race. And the reality is, yes, we're a fallen race. We're a fallen race. None is righteous. No, not one. Have you ever thought about how, how, how can that be in the Bible? There's no one righteous, no, not one. Well, I know some godly people. I know some good people, don't you? So how can the Bible say there's none righteous, no, not one? Well, friend, it has to do with what is the measurement for righteous? If you measure people by me, I tell you what, there's a lot of righteous people measured to me. But righteousness is not being measured to me or to you or to any other person. Righteousness is measured against God. And God is perfect. He alone is righteous. And there compared to him is none righteous. No, not one. We have all sinned, the Bible says, and come short of the standard of God. Shall we pat ourselves on the back because we're better than others? Does it matter really for eternity if you miss God by a million miles or a trillion miles? Does it really matter? We are all sinners. We've all come short of God's standard. And because of that, we stand before this God without any merit. Am I going to offer up my, my good works to God, works? Am I going to offer them up for the salvation of my soul? Is there, is there something I can do that can merit the grace and mercy of a holy God? Is there something I can do to atone for my sins? What could I possibly give? What could I possibly do? A thousand lifetimes would not be enough to put away all the sin that I have committed. None is righteous. No, not one. We have no merit, but thank God. Now listen, we don't have any merit, but you know what we do have? We do have a mediator. Amen. There's a mediator. And that one mediator is Christ Jesus. One God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He's the one and only. He is the one and only who can bring God and man together, who can be the legal representative for both. And make peace. He's the only one that can do it. Now why is that? Let me tell you why Jesus is the one mediator. First of all, he's the one mediator because of his amazing birth. His amazing birth. His birth was not like any other human being. 
The Bible says that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, so that from his mother Mary he received the human nature, but his divine nature was his brought to this earth by the Holy Spirit's power so that the child that was born in Bethlehem was son of God and son of man at the same time. He was fully God and fully man. And therefore, he is the only one who has ever existed who can represent God because he is God and can represent man because he is man and can bring the two together. He alone can do it because he is both at the same time. He's the God-man forever. To this very day and for all eternity, he will be the God-man. He's the only one because of his amazing birth, because of his atoning death. His atoning death. He's the only one, because he was God and man, who could pay the price, the penalty that was due for our sins, so that justice could be satisfied. God's justice on sin could be satisfied, and our need of a savior could be satisfied. He alone could do that. Notice what it says, verse six. Let's begin at verse five. For there is one God, there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a, what's the next word? Ransom. What's a ransom? It's a payment of debt. A payment of debt. He gave himself as a ransom for all. And this is the testimony. This is the gospel testimony given at this time to be shared. He gave himself as a ransom for all. Jesus paid the debt. He paid the debt of our sin, the ransom. So that what? He might bring us to God. Paying the debt set us free, and bring us to God. I love what Peter says, 1 Peter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might do what? Bring us to God. Isn't that beautiful? Take us by the hand. Having paid the price, Take us and bring us to God. To bring us back to Eden. To bring us back to paradise. To bring us back to what it means to be an image bearer. To bring us back to fellowship with our creator. To bring us back to eternal purpose and joy unspeakable and full of glory. To bring us back to the person we were created and meant to be, to bring us back to full satisfaction forever and ever and ever to bring us to God. He paid the debt. And now as Christians, verse 25, Peter says in chapter two, we were like, we were straying like sheep 
But now we've returned to the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. What's Peter quoting here? Do you know? He's quoting from Isaiah 53, the great prophecy of the suffering Messiah. What does it say? All we like sheep have what? Gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Yet the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The ransom paid by Jesus. He brings us to God. He brings us home. And now he saves us by his endless life. He is the mediator, not as a dead man. He is the mediator as the living man, the living Christ who has ascended to heaven and he's in the very presence of God. What's a mediator do? A mediator represents you. And in heaven there is At God's right hand, Jesus, who is representing his people right now, pleading our cause. Hebrews says this. Listen carefully. Hebrews 7. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number. There used to be many in priests. Because they were prevented from, by death from continuing. They died out, so they had to have new priests all the time. But he, Christ, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. To make, since he always lives, to make intercession for them. He is able to save to the uttermost. I like that word, don't you? Uttermost. Now, friend, this morning, I'm going to tell you, there's your hope. There's your hope. Jesus has undertaken on your behalf And he is able to save to the uttermost. Regardless, no matter of the depths of sin, there is no depths of sin to which Jesus and his love does not go deeper and his sacrifice does not go deeper. I love what someone said, Jesus saves to the uttermost and the guttermost. Praise God, right? Down in the gutter, his blood washes away sin. I want you to look to Jesus today, my friend. You may think you've gone too deeply into sin, but you have not gone deeper than the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. No matter the distance, you say, I've gone too far. Here's your hope. You say, I've gone too far. I've gone too far from God. Listen, how far did Jesus come for you? From eternity to this earth, he came. You can't go too far for him. Some people say, it's been too long. I've lived this life so long. 
I've had people tell me in their 80s, yes, even their 90s, preacher, I've lived this way too long. Friend, listen. 2,000 years ago, there was someone who undertook for you. No matter how long your sin, longer, ages long ago, the Lord Jesus Christ paid your debt. And now he ever lives. Friend, listen. Salvation, your hope, listen, is not found in looking to a religion. Your hope is not found in looking to a church. Your hope is not found in looking to your best efforts, but your hope is found in looking to Jesus, the one and only, who is alive. He's alive. And that's the reason right now at this moment, eternity is in this moment. Eternity is in this moment because in this moment, you have the opportunity to look away from your sin and look away from your failure and look to one who undertook for you. Trusting him, looking to him, relying on him, no longer looking to your failure, but looking to the one who succeeded for you. And asking him, calling upon him to be your Lord, your Savior. Listen, here's the promise. He is able, he is willing and able to save to the uttermost those who draw nigh to God through him. Jesus is reaching out his hand by faith will you take him today let's bow our heads our heads are bowed eternity is in this moment I don't often do this but I feel led to do this right now may our heads be bowed I wonder if some doubters here this morning who now have hope, you now have hope, will you say, Lord Jesus, to you, I lift my voice, I lift my faith to you, I lift my hand to you, Lord Jesus, I look to you. You alone is my Savior and King. Eternity is in this moment. Lord, I look away from my guilt. I look to you, the guiltless one. I look away from my failure. I look to you who succeeded. I look away from my death. I look to you who delivered. To you, Lord Jesus. Yes, to you I look. So our heads are bowed. I wonder if you just let me pray with you. Would you just slip up your hand just for a moment? Just let me pray for you. God bless you. God bless you. 
Who else could I pray for? God bless you, you sir. God bless you. You're not looking to anyone else but Jesus. And it's, it's not your hand, you know that, but your heart lifted up to Christ. Just pray to him, say, Lord Jesus, unworthy as I am, you have undertaken for me. I call upon you. I receive you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you.